Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here returning with us, Joanna Robinson. Welcome back, Joanna. We missed you last week. Hi, Katie. Uh, but the twist is that we're missing Richard this week. He's gone. Uh, but joining us instead, we have a special guest, Noah Gattel. Hi, Noah. Hey, guys. Uh, so I was going to let you introduce your credits since uh, we, we brought you in here because you had a viral thread about the best original song category. But I don't think that's how you make your living uh, is tweeting about the original song category, right? Not yet, but that was so popular. <laughs> there might be a, a cottage industry here. No, I'm um, I'm a freelance film critic. I have been writing at Washington City Paper in D.C. for the last seven years. Uh, also can be found at The Guardian and Polygon and The Economist and places like that. And uh, I do these... Um, I do these lectures, virtual lectures now for Smithsonian Associates down in D.C. as well. I have one coming up on the Oscars. So I'm uh, I'm deep in it at the moment and looking forward to chat more about this topic. Museum quality Oscar expert. That is what we ask for in our guests. Um, so we as we said last week, we recorded before the Oscar shortlist came out. And then it, it felt like it became almost a bigger topic than I anticipated. Like the shortlist happened every year. But I think the way that award season is slow, like everyone was really eager to talk about it. And uh, original song, as has almost become a tradition, kind of became a flashpoint for it. So we're going to get into that with Noah, who has a lot of history of the category. We're going to talk a little bit more about Judas and the Black Messiah, which we got into last week. Um, it's now on HBO Max. And um, at the end of the episode, we have an interview that I did with Tahar Rahim, who's nominated for a Golden Globe for his lead performance in The Mauritanian. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that movie before we hear the interview. But first, okay, so Noah, you... Follow the Oscars a lot, but Best Original Songs shortlist last week really got you worked up. Um, what, what, what was your initial reaction to seeing the original song shortlist last week? My initial reaction was I hadn't heard of several of the films. Uh, I had not heard of Mr. Soul or Giving Voice or Belly of the Beast. I mean, I'm a film critic. I don't see everything. I don't know everything. Um, but the fact that there were three films I had never heard of is um, not a good sign to me <laughs> because, you know, the Oscars are supposed to um, be elevating things that are good and maybe people don't know about. But Best Original Song in particular often ends up with these films that are unremarkable. I haven't seen them, so I can't say for sure. 
they have songs over their closing credits that really have nothing to do with the film except thematically, often sung by or written by a famous pop star. To me, this is very anti-cinema. This is something that should be in the Grammys, not at the Oscars, if you're going to do it this way. And I think the Oscars should be honoring songs that play integral roles within the film. And there were so many opportunities to do that this year. And uh, they just left a lot of those on the cutting room floor and opted for these, you know, no offense to these people, but John Legend and Diane Warren written songs that we've all kind of heard before. Or have not heard the actual specific song because you've never seen the movie, but the uh, <laughs> version exactly. of that song. Exactly. Yeah, and we should say that this is in some way plays itself out every year. Like you have, you know, some years for the category are better than others. Like you get a Skyfall, you get a Let It Go, and then some years you get a whole bunch of anonymous songs. But this year does feel especially glaring, partly because of COVID probably, because you're just not getting as many like, you know, there isn't a big Disney musical. There's all kinds of stuff that might have qualified that that didn't come out. Um, but it does feel like especially trying hard to miss the point this year. Totally agree. And to me, like I get riled up when I look over the history of this category. And I think it's kind of obvious when you look at any particular year, what song from a movie is the song we're all going to remember in five or 10 years. And very often that song is not nominated at all. And almost all the time that song doesn't win. As you said, there's a few counterexamples, you know, Shallow won, uh, Remember Me from Coco, nobody's gonna argue with that. But I don't know, do you want me to like run through a few, just a few examples? Because I think it's it's worth noting just how wrong they have gone it in this category over the years. It'll really wake me up. I'll get nice and, and angry and feisty. So. <laughs> We're going into outrage mode, good. Uh, all right, just a few. Uh, Glasgow from Wild Rose. Yeah, that was last year's big, big scandal. I know a lot of people didn't see this movie, but you don't, honestly, the song is so beautiful. It's it's hard to imagine people didn't go for this, um, but it does work incredibly well within the context of the song. In fact, it kind of plays the same role that Husevik plays in Eurovision, which was nominated. And thematically, it's kind of the same song. I mean, this is a person singing about their hometown on a big stage and kind of coming to grips with the place that they're from and what that means for them. So I find it weird that Glasgow was not nominated and Husevik was, but um, some other key omissions over the years, nothing from Sing Street in 2017. You know what? You know I love Sing Street. Uh, we are pro Sing Street on this podcast. Please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside Lewin Davis. It's a goofy song, but I actually think it's a pretty good pop song and I don't understand why that wasn't recognized. Mm-hmm. And obviously that has become a meme and and very well remembered. You know, nothing from Scott Pilgrim. I, I find that kind of strange. I mean, these are all movies that are like built around musicians and have original songs in them. And they're good movies. They're not necessarily all Oscar movies, but they're just they're just left out of the conversation completely. And of, of all the stuff that I tweeted about, the two that got the most um, likes, I guess, were Pop Goes My Heart for Music and Lyrics and the waltz from Before Sunset. And to me, those are, are two of the most unimpeachable selections. They they should have 100% been nominated and probably won. And uh, they were neither. I would say in Scott Pilgrim's defense, that movie seems to exist. Its powers derive from the extent to which people tried to ignore it and diminish it at the time. And it has only grown <laughs> in, in power as a cult classic. So if it had gotten an Oscar nomination, that might have like really ruined its cred. Uh, well, that start. is always a thing. Sometimes not getting the nomination <laughs> is better in the long term. And yeah. you're right, particularly with that film. Yes. 
I'm trying to figure out what won the uh, original song Oscar the year that that thing you do is nominated because, you know, like, I feel like we keep having these circular conversations about fictional bands and movies. It comes up like every so often. And like that thing you do always seems to be the song that people are like, this is it. This is the best fictional band song in a, in a film. Ever, well, you know? Joanna, the winner yeah. was you must love me from Evita, a song we uh, all remember. Who uh, could forget? Who the, could forget? You the, must love me. The <laughs> tactic of adding a new song to a like famous yes. musical. It just never, it <laughs> never course. works. And like, it, I don't think one of those has won the original song Oscar since then. I think that's the only time it worked. Um, but yes, justice for that thing you do in all, in all things. Well, and to me, this probably, speaks to one of the issues with this category. And this has been a problem at the Oscars for a long time, obviously, which is that, you know, the nominating branch is like traditional. They're probably older. And, you know, um, I don't mean this in an ageist way, but when Andrew Lloyd Webber is nominated versus Adam Schlesinger, who wrote that thing you do, who's an equal genius in my mind, they're going to pick Andrew Lloyd Webber 100 times out of 100. So I don't know if efforts have been made to diversify the music branch in the same way efforts have been made to diversify the academy in general. But I, I think, think it's that been would... a pretty overall academy wide. I would imagine the music branch has gotten more diverse as the rest of the academy has. Well, hopefully that will um, fix it over time. And, you know, there's been a weird kind of stop and start effort there. I mean, um, you know, uh, Hard Out Here for a Pimp won Best Original Song uh, right. 10 years ago. Uh, but then you get these kind of milk toast and credit songs in, in alternating years. So it's it's hard to see the progress, but hopefully there is progress being made there. I think the the the, the whole thing about the milk toast in, in credit song, and I think that's what we have a lot of this year. Like there's the Leslie Adams Jr. song from One Night in Miami. There's the Janelle Monae song from the Stacey Abrams documentary. Um, there's the John Legend song that you mentioned. I can't remember what movie that's from. There's two John Legend songs. Oh. There's a... Well, he is an Oscar winner in this category, so I guess he has some <laughs> uh, some stature. I think you're talking about Never Break from Giving Voice, but he also wrote the Jingle Jangle song, apparently. Oh, good for him. Oh, okay. Jingle Jangle, a legit musical. I got to say, I didn't realize it was going to qualify because it was a Netflix film and, you know, the qualification rules around those are funny. But I, because it showed up here, I think in the makeup category, like Jingle Jangle had a very good day on the shortlist day. And I was, I was delighted for it. I watched not the entire thing, but enough of it to know that it was very well constructed and it's a legitimate musical in the original song category. Yeah, I'd be okay with the Jingle Jangle win. That would be kind of quirky enough to to satisfy me. <laughs> Plus the phrase Jingle Jangle win is, is hard to ignore. So, you know. uh, yeah, Joanna, are you, are you worked up now? Are you furious? Um, well, today begins my campaign to get Adam Schlesinger a, a posthumous honorary Oscar because I think he definitely deserves one for that thing you do is work on Josie and the Pussycats and a number of other things. So, um, you know, what better way for this uh, this branch to I mean, I don't think they usually do that for songwriters, but they should. Yeah. Adam Schlesinger deserves it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm riled up. There you go. <laughs> got my, got my back up. Well, we should talk about, so what it feels like this this year's lineup specifically, and I should say the thing that I got riled up about and I tweeted about and we'll talk about forever is that Taylor Swift's song from her documentary, Miss Americana, was not made, did not make the short list, even though it is central to the film in a way that almost none of these other nominees are. I think Husevic and probably the Borat song being the major exceptions. Um, I, and this is the second time, second year in a row, she hasn't been shortlisted, though I think we can all maybe agree her cat song was not the strongest entry from last year. But so what it basically comes down to is you've got the Eurovision song Husevic, which uh, you mentioned, and then a bunch of end credit songs from famous people who I would be happy to see have an Oscar but cannot rile up any passion for. And that's that's basically where the category stands. 
Even the good songs, like I really like Rain Song from Minari, mm-hmm. but it's not particularly memorable. It's not going to stick with you uh, over the years. I mean, it's a it's a very beautiful song, but it is an end credits song. And that's just kind of what you would say about about all these songs. The other one I would mention that I think should have been on the shortlist that wasn't is um, Poverty Porn from the 40-year-old version. Uh, it's the, the rap that she writes in the middle of, of uh, the film. And it's really, you know, this is a film about her being true to her artistic uh, uh, mm-hmm. self. And it's a really important song in the context of the film. And it's a really good song. And it speaks to racial issues that the Academy has been dealing with for many years now. I was surprised to see that uh, not on the shortlist. So you're saying, no, overall, that you really want more songs that are central to the the plot, the actual thrust of the film to be recognized rather than these sort of footnote songs. Absolutely. Because to me, if you're only recognizing end credits songs, you're not recognizing the film. And I mean, these are the Oscars and it should be connected to the film in a particular way. And I think one reason why this ends up happening is because the rules associated with nominating these songs. I was really shocked when I saw this in my research, but the nominating branch are given clips of the songs from the film. They don't get the whole film to watch. They only get three minutes. And if the song is longer than three minutes, they don't even get the whole song. They only get three minutes of that song to determine their nominations. Now, they're full members. Maybe they get all the movies anyway, and maybe they watch them all. Although, honestly, with Academy members, you never know. And it's Uh, just a lot of movies. It's a lot of movies. And either way, I think sending the clips kind of sends the message to them that this is not about the song in the context of the film. This is about the song out of context. And that just doesn't make any sense to me in a movie awards ceremony. That's yeah. really interesting. The, the other thing that I was thinking about, um, we think about this more when it comes to the way that the Golden Globes, the HFPA approaches their nominations. But I wonder how much... Um, this branch and the Academy in general think about the nominations in terms of what will make the best show when they put it all together. Like, you know, last year, not so humble brag when I was in the room for the Oscars, um, (laughs) the the Cynthia Revo performance, which I know read really well, regardless on the broadcast, just absolutely stunned the room. And it, it was like, it was this moment where I felt like I could feel a bunch of voting members think like, if I had to vote right now, um, uh-huh. I would vote for this song. <laughs> you know, so I'm wondering if they if they pick starry folks who have uh, closing credit songs so that they can have like these the pepper these performances throughout the show. I think that's certainly possible. Although, why no Taylor Swift? That it's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a great question. Yeah, that, we call that the Lady Gaga at the 2015 Oscars effect, Joanna, where she did that performance of her song from the Hunting Ground, which was not a great song, uh, but everyone kind of misremembers it winning over. But Sam Smith won that year for this for the Spectre song. Um, but then Lady Gaga got her Oscar too, so I guess it all worked out in the end. But I think you're right that like uh, the ideal song is something like Shallows or uh, Falling Slowly or something like that, where like there's a beautiful performance at the at the uh, ceremony itself. It's a song we iconically identify with that film. And it's a song that feels like caught up in the plot of that film. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it, even better if you can have the actual actors singing it. I mean, that's yeah. not always the case. I don't think with Husevic we would get Rachel McAdams singing probably because yeah. she, kind she of doesn't only sing sang- in the movie yeah right um but when you can do that like you could with shallow i mean that was the indelible moment of those yeah. Oscars. Yeah. and i would even like like glory and selma is not is a credit song like john legend actually comment in in selma he might be um but 
they, you know, you associate it with the movie. It has the spirit of the movie kind of tied up in it. Um, And the same with, like, Skyfall. You know, those songs, I think, remind you of the film itself rather than feeling just kind of like something that's put in there to send you out of the imaginary theater where you watch these movies because you watch them all at home. 100%. And at least those are movies we all know and heard of and were part of the Oscar conversation, whereas you can't say that with all of the the, yeah. the songs on the shortlist. I will say for on, on that note, the Judas and the Black Messiah song, um, I think has a really good, like it fits in the vibe of the movie. Like it feels almost like a period song. Um, I, of all the credit songs that I listened to to kind of figure out which one of these I wanted to like root for, I, I like I thought that one stood out a little bit above the others. I liked it. Uh, I liked it a lot. I liked. I thought Turntables was was okay too. Um, as a, the Janelle Monae song, I think from All In, Fight for Democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't particularly substantive. I thought, but it it had a had a good beat, I guess, which maybe is enough these days. Um, but uh, but I like Fight for You. I think that would that would be a good choice. I don't I don't think it's gonna win. I have a weird feeling Husevic is gonna win, but um, but we'll see. I thought we were all going for uh, for Leslie Odom Jr.'s yeah. uh, song from One Night mm-hmm. Miami, which is the, the the small but significant problem with these songs is so many of them like have make it work, fight for you, show me your soul, speak now. Like all the titles kind of feel like they bleed together. Um, but the Leslie Odom Jr. one is called Speak Now, uh, and it's a it's a lovely song. But I think the trick with that one, and that happens in a lot of music biopics, is that uh, it's not uh, the Sam Cooke song that is very famous that actually ends the movie, and it's just it's not as good a song, which is not to insult that song, but. It's tough that you can't vote for the the song that really does define that movie at the end. I feel like it's a it would be a sideways way to recognize how powerful it is when Leslie Adam Jr. sings Sam Cooke in the yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like well, but this you know similar to You Must Love Me. I <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can't give a change is going to come an Oscar, so you do the next best thing. Right. right. And I, I I feel like sometimes when an os- an actor is nominated uh, for their acting and also for a song, they yeah. cut, they like. Lady Gaga, you know, like that happens sometimes where they will win song as sort of the consolation prize. I'm going to say this. I think I have this right because I feel like I've said this on the show repeatedly. As far as I know, Mary J. Blige was the first person to be nominated for original song and uh, acting Oscar at the same year um, mm. because she wrote her song for Mudbound. And then Lady Gaga did it again the following year. And then Cynthia Revo did it again the next year. So it's like a weird micro trend that has started. So Leslie Adam Jr. Uh, could very well carry that torch forward. Wow. Was Barbara not nominated? I don't know if Barbara was a songwriter because you have to be the writer of the song. She was on The Mirror with Two Faces, uh, but I don't know if she was nominated for Best Actress. She probably wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she won an Oscar for that song from A Song is Born. Okay, hold on. I'm going to fact check myself. Hold on. I'm on on the Wikipedia page. Oh. Yeah, she won her second Academy Award for Was she nominated for Best Actress for A Star is Born, though? That is a great question. Follow-up question. Wikipedia Oscar. She was not. Barbara was not nominated for Best Actress for A Star is Born. Okay, that's mm. that's what happened to her. <laughs> Oscar Wikipedia <laughs> deep dive. All right. Um, all right. Well, before we get away from the short list, anything else from the other categories that struck you guys? Um, Joanna, I don't want to spoil future articles that will go up on VF.com, but you did write a whole article about the hair and makeup in Promising Young Woman, and it did not make the short list, which it infuriated me. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's kind of okay because I think we put it, we we wrote about it in hair and makeup because we didn't foresee that it would do so well elsewhere. That's we true. We kind of thought that that was going to be uh, the spear tip for it. But it turns out that like, it's it's just, uh, I don't know if I want to say overperforming, but overperforming expectations maybe elsewhere this award season. So, uh, you know, that's I'm true. not, I'm not, my blood's not boiling about that. 
Okay. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, it, it was fun to talk to them about it because they did do that on a shoestring and it is in, in like an integral part of that film. So similarly to what we're saying about these songs that we'd like to see nominated, the idea of like her, her mercurial sort of like looks in, in that film, um, I don't think mercurial is the word I want. Maybe chameleonic uh, would, would, you know, would, would be nice to recognize, but I don't know. I, I don't, what do you, are you feeling uh, feisty about anything, Katie or Noah? <laughs> no, I'd love to hear from you. Although maybe you use all your anger on original song. Yeah. I'm outraged out on best original song. <laughs> I'm just going to listen. I mean, I, as I brought up Taylor Swift, uh, I, Miss Americana, the documentary about her was not shortlisted in the documentary category, which I just hate because I think that movie is really terrific. Um, and it's, you know, it's a Netflix release. Netflix had a lot of films that made the shortlist. So I don't know really what was going on there. Other than that, you know, there's just a lot of good documentaries to choose from. I mean, a lot of the ones that you would expect, like Time, Dick Johnson's Dead, Crib Camp, My Beloved Boy State are all in there. So I'm not going to complain too much about that. But I also wanted to bring up, we had someone text us a question. And by the way, if you signed up to text with us, thank you for doing it. Keep signing up. I'll mention at the end. Um, asked how soul qualifies in the visual effects category. And I don't know. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of it because um, I find that really interesting. And I don't think any other like fully animated film has ever been nominated in visual effects. But we're going to we're going to try to get to it. I mean, soul is a beautiful movie. And I'm very interested to know what process went into that to make it qualify here. Yeah, I have to wonder, I mean, does this tie in at all to the, you know, fuzzy, um, not to use an animal term, but like the debate of like whether or not The Lion King was an animated film or a lot. I mean, obviously Soul is not in that category, but I'm wondering like if yeah. if if Soul used uh, like sort of groundbreaking digital effects. Yeah, maybe that, they did. You know, which Pixar often does that that they wanted to acknowledge. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, I have, I have. Okay, I have one more short list thing to say. Yeah. Given that Suicide Squad is an Oscar-winning film for best hair and makeup, will Birds of Prey continue the trend of the uh, <laughs> of that cinematic universe we, winning how, there? How honestly can I talk about that, Katie? Am I allowed <laughs> to talk about that? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like you can. We wanted to write about the hair, the hair and makeup, yeah. and Birds of Prey, and we're not able to. War, Through no Warner fault Brothers, of our own. Warner Brothers did not want to, you know, they really wanted, they had other films, including the one we're about to talk about, that they really wanted, like, to highlight. And they didn't want us to to write about that film necessarily. So I don't know if they've got, maybe now that it's on the short list, their studio will be more enthusiastically supporting them. But I'm all for Birds of Prey, uh, hair and makeup win. Why not? Chaos. Yeah. It's a ladder. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah. It's, uh, that's an interesting category because, you, you know, you've got Hillbilly Elegy in there for, you know, the prosthetics for going close and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which has like both prosthetics for Viola Davis and just like interesting period makeup. Uh, Jingle Jangle, once again, um, I don't really know what to make of the makeup category. Um, so it'll be interesting to see which ones actually make the final list. Well, Joanna, as you tease, we wanted to talk a little bit about Judas and the Black Messiah again. Um, mostly, Joanna, because you weren't on last week's episode and you love this movie so much. I just wanted to give you a chance to sing its praises primarily. Um, and also, presumably, more people listening have seen it since it's now on HBO Max. So, I, you, Joanne, I assume you're still as high on Judas and the Black Messiah as you were after you first saw it. I am. I, I really loved this film. Um, and I loved all the performances in it. And I loved uh, what I learned about history from it, which is sort of your ideal uh, result from from a film like this, that you will learn a lot about something that you didn't know uh, much about. Um, I have seen, since I saw it a little while ago, I have seen some folks um, in, in the film criticism community talk about their issues with it. 
and I was surprised, but I think something that we all agree on is that it's anchored by some great performances. So that that's the consistent thing that I've seen of like some folks uh, are not as enamored with the filmmaking as I was because I don't know, it, it read as messy to some people and it made me want to watch it again because I just remember being so taken by it. But but the main criticism that I've seen is that it felt like hopping from historical moment to historical moment without really feeling like a smooth story told all the way through. But I kind of feel like the fact that it is so rooted in the perspective of Lakeith Sanfield's character, it makes sense to me the way that it's sort of hopping because this is sort of uh, pitched as kind of like a confessional kind mm. of story. But I think for both Lakeith and 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 very much so Daniel Kaluuya, like people are all in on honoring those uh, performances. So Yeah, I, I rewatched it since we talked about it last week. Um, and was kind of noticing some of the what you're talking about where it's just a, a complicated story to of what leads to the death of Fred Hampton and it takes a lot you need a lot of people you have you know they have to combine some real people into composite characters just to make the storytelling streamlined so it's going to yeah. get kind of expansive especially in the second half and what i think as for the tremendousness of those two performances what i think i really wanted from it that kind of history won't let you have like Fred Hampton and, and Bill O'Neill were not like best friends it wasn't like Judas and Jesus so and you're not going to get the like Jesus Christ superstar moments that the title might suggest but I think that's what I wanted when I was first watching it and I think watching it again as happens with a lot of really big movies you can kind of like go with it more and be like this is the story that it is it's not the story that I thought it might be from the beginning and yeah watching it again and watching those performances like what each of them does with their like still faces <laughs> like mm-hmm. Daniel Kaluuya is becoming famous for his head tilt and like he stand feels like eyes can be so like sad and like mysterious and all these things all at once. It's really something to rewatch how they build those characters. I I liked it more the second time I watched it as well. I actually still had some problems with it connected to what you were just saying, which is that I think it's a fascinating portrait in Fred Hampton um, of a leader. I mean, he is a person who has outsourced his life to this cause I didn't feel like I really understood him or connected with him as a person so much. I thought the romantic subplot was a little bit glossed over. And I think some of this is intentional. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya is an actor who I think has come to specialize, or at least these are the parts he he, he gravitates towards, in characters who are holding back quite a lot of, of their vulnerability or of themselves mm. in Get Out, certainly in Widows. I mean, he has like no humanity in that, that role at all or very little. And in this, I think he's holding back as well. And Lakeith Stanfield is certainly holding back too. Um, and I found it just a little hard to really connect to them as people. And I think maybe it's right there in the title. I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah, the movie is engaging with them as icons. Um, I didn't feel like it was engaging with their humanity quite enough for me. On the first viewing, certainly. On the second viewing, like you, I was able to go along with it a little more and appreciate the ride and the history lesson and the perspective. But but I have to say, I did feel a little distance from the characters. That's why I, I don't know what was in my coffee the morning that I woke up and watched that, but I just like, I completely... <laughs> wrecked me and I got on the podcast and I was like there will be no other movie this award season that is this important and Katie's like okay Joanna uh, no but I like I, I love it I love it when a movie especially in the Oscar context it feels like a weird way to talk about a movie that you love but when you see something in an award season you're just like this is the movie like I am writing with this all the way to the end that's a great feeling and like Judas and the Black Messiah could still very well be that movie like it's coming out now people are just starting to talk about it 
And I think it's only going to grow in the in prominence from here. There's a scene where um, Daniel Kaluuya, as, as as Fred Hampton, is giving a speech. Lakeith Stanfield's character is is sort of taking it all in. We, we've seen him sort of go through an evolution already. And then you've got the Jesse Plemons character watching him. The tension between those three men in that scene, two of whom are doing, as you say, Noah, sort of just like silent face acting. Yeah. Um, I just think that's some of the best cinema I've seen this year. That's a great Um, scene. Yeah. And especially the first half of the movie, you get so many great scenes of just basically Fred Hampton walking into a room. Like, you know, he goes into the pool hall. He goes and has the meeting with this, like, with this gang who he's trying to get, you know, in his Rainbow Coalition and just the way he owns a space. Yeah. Um, And in different ways. Like, he's giving that really fiery speech in that one scene you mentioned. And then in other times, he's, like, diffusing a situation to make it less violent. And then, like, he gets in the car and is almost a completely different person, like, relaxed with his friends and watching how a leader, like you said, Noah, like, the way that someone can just command people to pay attention to him. Like Daniel Kaluuya has that as a person and he brings so much of that to the character too. I mean, the character is basically a general, right? I mean, that's kind of how I saw it watching it the second time. And maybe there isn't um, as much room for vulnerability when you're leading an army as he is. So I think it's understandable and I think it's actually the right choice for the character. And, And Jesse Plemons, I mean, like, I don't want the only person to be nominated from this movie to be the white guy, but I'm ready for a Jesse Plemons Oscar nomination at some point soon because I think he's fabulous in this, fabulous in The Irishman, and and basically in everything he does. I've become pretty convinced Daniel Kaluuya is going to win Supporting Actor. Um, and it's weird that he is in Supporting Actor, I think, because it's pretty clearly a two-league movie. Best. But, yeah. you know, we accept these things uh, in, as a result of, like, you know, you People are, are never going to campaign two actors of the same gender in this and lead together, and so you just accept it. Um, but I think Daniel Kaluuya could very well win. Um, and I don't know if, like, that would mean room for them to nominate Jesse Plemons as well, because I agree with you, Noah, that he's great in it. Um, but, yeah, it's a shame that he's being bumped down supporting, because Plemons really is a supporting player, and he's great in this movie, too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it feels like gen- very clear category fraud to have Kaluuya in uh, supporting, but I'm not mad about it <laughs> at all, at all. Um, and I would I would love to see him win here. And but I agree with you. I'm like I'm a longtime Jesse Plemons uh, fan, so I I am really excited for whatever it is that it is his year. He's often the most mesmerizing slash sort of underrated uh, member of most casts that he's in because he's not uh, you know with the exception of like Game Night he's not often like a showy performer. But oh, he's, he's just, so like, funny in Game Night. He's I so good been in thinking Game about Night. That. <laughs> And but he's yeah. he, he was tremendous last year, and I'm thinking of ending things as well. Correct. So yeah. I mean, he, they could honor him for either of those, and I would yeah, be yeah. happy. Man, looking back back on my Wikipedia, um, this would be if Daniel Kaluuya wins. This is three years in a row of men from two male lead movies winning supporting actor: Mahershala <laughs> and Green Book, and then Brad Pitt and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that's that's a trend I would like to see end. Maybe after Daniel Kaluuya gets his Oscar. Well, I heard the argument somewhere uh, that. It was a strategic choice to, because, particularly because Chadwick Boseman is such a shoe yeah. in for Best Actor this year. So yeah. they wanted to kind of clear that for him and put him somewhere where he had yeah. even and better Yeah, and Chadwick Boseman is probably also going to get nominated in supporting for Defy Bloods, which is a whole mm-hmm. other thing. Um, but yes, yeah, so you, you understand where it's coming from while also maybe wanting justice for the supporting players who get who get bumped out. Yes, definitely. 
So now, um, before we share my interview with Tahar Rahim, the star of the Martanian, I just want to talk a little bit about the movie, which I think at this point I'm the only one on the show who's seen, so I'll try to keep it quick. Um, but it is, it's based on this pretty astonishing true story of uh, this man who was in prison in Guantanamo for 15 years and wrote a diary about his experiences there and kind of developed a relationship with these two attorneys who were played in the movie by Jodie Foster and Shailene Woodley, uh, kind of the efforts to get him out of there. I think at this point in American history, like Guantanamo and the war on terror and kind of the many horrible things that happen with that are something we don't think about as much as we used to. And this movie is a really powerful argument for why you should, because it's focused on this one person. His name is Mohamedou Salahi, uh, as I said, played by Tahar Rahim, who's a French actor. He broke out about a decade ago in A Prophet, um, which is one thing really interesting we talked about in the interview, because he talked about, you know, he didn't speak a ton of English. He was in this movie that was this big international hit. And people were like, you're going to be a big deal. All these things are going to happen to you. And he kind of shied away from it, like almost like scared to jump into it, which I think is the opposite of what a lot of people would do. But I think allowed him to have the career he does now where he's worked a lot in France. He's kind of doing increasingly more English language roles. He has worked on improving his English, as he talks about, too, uh, and is returning in this movie with director Kevin McDonald, who we worked with on The Eagle, uh, which I don't know how well anyone remembers that. It was like a Channing Tatum, Jamie Bell, Roman Gladiator movie. Um, I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, and they stayed friends after that, which is uh, really interesting. Um, and he was just, you know, he's a great interview. He was really great in the Netflix series last year, The Eddie, um, which got kind of underwatched. I talked to Andre Holland on this show about it. Um, and it was so, like, lived in and, like, you know, very, like, modern day Paris for those of us who maybe think of, you know, people eating baguettes and striped shirts in Paris. Uh, not that I would ever be such a dumb American to think that. Um Anyway, Tahar Rahim was a great interview. He's nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor, which I think surprised a fair number of people, maybe even him. Um, but it's really well-deserved. The movie is not, like, the easiest watch, but I do think if you've ever seen him and seen Tahar Rahim in a movie and thought, like, I think that guy could really do something great, um, this is the movie that really shows that. So let's listen to my conversation with Tahar Rahim. You don't mind if I uh, smoke my cigarette? That's <laughs> like the most French thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. still French. <laughs> and you're in France right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Paris. Have you been there the whole time for this this past year? Actually, I had to go to London to finish uh, shooting for two weeks, and uh, I had one week of holiday in Morocco. That wasn't. What were you finishing shooting in London? The Serpent. A TV oh, show right. that I did for, yeah. Right, not the Mauritanian. Mauritanian rap before. before no, yeah, right started. before, like two or three weeks before. Wow, lucky. Before the first lockdown. Yeah. Uh, and where were you guys shooting the Mauritanian? South Africa okay. and, uh, and Mauritania. Oh, wow. I don't think I yeah. realized that. Yeah. Well, first, I'll start by going back to the beginning because I was looking at other interviews you did and you met Kevin McDonald when you worked together on The Eagle. But you had also said that at that point you didn't really speak much English and you didn't feel like you were able to kind of build the relationship with the director. But then you guys also stayed in touch. So what how did you guys strike up that relationship that then continued to the Mauritanian? Uh, you know, when you feel for someone, you know it. You know, you don't need to say it or prove it in a way. And uh, I felt this from uh, Kevin, and, and, I, and, I, and I did so. But the problem is that, yeah, I wouldn't speak English, so I, st I was speaking English, but, you know, totally broken. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, yeah, I started to work on my English, and I would go back and forth in, uh, in London just, uh, you know, for, uh, for a weekend or something. And I've been working with a lot of foreign directors, 
And the only way to communicate was in English. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so we talked with Kevin, like uh, me messaging each other. How are you? Happy New Year. Things like that. And each time I would come to London, we'd have dinner or, uh, you know, a drink. And uh, he came over to me like five or six years ago with a TV show that he was meant to direct. And um, Johan Rank directed it eventually. Yeah. That's how we stayed in touch and then, you know, talking like that. And, uh, and then he sent me a text like two years ago saying, I have a good part for you, so let's talk. And uh, that's uh, how the Mauritanian story started. Yeah. And so when he, br when he brings that to you, you know, I think everyone has some familiarity with Guantanamo, but I think you can, you know, know more about it than others. What was your level of knowledge of that situation when he hands you this script in this book? Uh, I mean, I think as as much as everybody, okay. you know, those, you know, the, 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 the pictures that were all over the news about what, what, what the guards were doing to their uh, detainees. So I knew about it. And at that moment, it was a couple of years ago, I knew that something very bad was happening over there. So we knew it, but not precisely. Mm -hmm. I never get the chance to really dig in and make some research. And I I did that while I was uh, preparing this um, this movie. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I didn't know that much, I, and I never heard about Muhammadu before. Yeah. Never heard of him or the book or you know. And it, I think when things like this are happening that that can feel far away or you know that are so awful that it's kind of hard to contemplate, we kind of protect ourselves by not thinking so much about these people, about them as specific individuals. And I think what this movie does, and I imagine what, you know, your feeling was reading the script is you read this and you feel Muhammadu as a person, like you feel this really individual person going into it. So when you're going into it as an actor, you have the script, obviously, but how do you kind of work to establish that connection with the audience and being like, this is not just a guy who endured something horrible. He's a person. He's funny. He's charming. He like has all these aspects to him that make him feel like someone you could really know. How do you work with that? First of all, there was a lot of uh, answers in the script. The script was so well written. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was all about universal values and not stereotypes. Mm -hmm. You see, usually, you know, people like uh, Muhammad who are depicted in only one way, with one face, one voice, and it's always the same. And I don't want to be a, uh, a vehicle for those uh, kind of stories. I never mm -hmm. wanted it. So when I read it, I got a lot of answers in the script. I I didn't want to meet Mohamedou, uh straightforward, uh, straight away because I I I needed to read the script the um, the book first, I needed to know a bit more about Guantanamo and all of it, and uh, I needed to secure the first Mohamedou that I had to portray, which is the one in the script mm -hmm. first. You know, there's a structure, certain timing, and you know, a compression of fifteen years. So. I, I didn't want to go all over the places, so I started to understand this one, which was pretty close to the other one, to the real one, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, I got to meet him, and uh, I mean, we talked, and I was very, very uh, shocked and surprised to, to see someone that, that nice, that thoughtful, with goodwill, and uh, funny, playing music, Knowing a lot of American movies, fond of American culture as mm. well. So I was mm. like, okay. And um, yeah, but when we get to talk about those uh, days and days and days of torture, uh, I mean, he changed. Like, literally, you could, uh, I mean, the PTSD is still here. Yeah. Like, 
strongly, but he manages in a way, uh, he manages to hide it. So you don't see it, but it's mm -hmm. still somewhere. I think he's still fighting and struggling, but now he masters it, you know. He knows yeah. how to live with this. That's kind of the miracle of his personality, right? Is that he went oh, through yeah. that and he has come out as, you know, as thoughtful and, and compassionate. And it's really hard to imagine yourself doing the same thing in, in that situation. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, I, if I'd be able to forgive people as he, as he did. I know. But the good thing that I took from him is that I would try. Now mm -hmm. I know that it, that's a good philosophy that I want to follow and try to put at the center of my life to give to my, uh, my kids, to the people I love, because it's way much better finally. When you, you're angry against someone or you know something like that, finally you're wrapping up your head thinking and thinking and overthinking about it, but at the end of the day, when you think about it, you are the one who suffers. Yeah. You know, the other one, they, they just you know keep going. So it's a good way, and that's what he said. Because when we were when we met for, by talking with him and spending time, I could catch him. You know, the way he moves, the way he looks at you, the way he talks, especially the way he answers questions, mm. and his uh, sense of humor, which is you know very special because it's uh, it's very funny <laughs> and it's uh, very layered as well. He could yeah. be sarcastic and uh, <clears throat> just funny like that. It's like a a. Uh, stand-up comedian, you know, hmm. in between two uh, segments, they have to improvise with the, uh, with the audience. Yeah. And it's like he's catching up in the air and uh, so, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he turns it into a joke. And then, you know, it's very, <laughs> I mean, he's very talented. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point I needed to understand what we were, uh, the fact that he would, you know, forgive people. And, and, and he told me something very interesting that I really, really took with me every day to be able to portray Mohamedou. Is that when, when you start to forgive people, he said, uh, uh, you give a treat to yourself. Mm -hmm. And eventually you might have the power to change people's perspective, people's mind, people's opinion. And he succeeded. Yeah. That's what happened with his guard. The people who would torture him became his friends. Yeah. You know, one of them, the one you see in the movie, uh, Stephen. Stephen visited him in, uh, in Mauritania. Wow. At home, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, uh, you know, it's very hard to reach that level of wisdom. Yeah. I guess. Well, I like the, um, you know, there's a lot of powerful things in the movie and a lot of really heavy stuff, but I really like the beginning parts in Mauritania where he's at this party, this like really gorgeous seeming party. And there's just so much ease in who this guy is. And he feels like so in command of of his place and around all of his friends. And I feel like you get such a good anchor in who he is before all these extraordinary things happen to him. And I, I, I believe you have family who came from Algeria, which shares a border with Martini, but I don't know how much cultural mm. similarity there is oh. there. Is there. Was there anything that you knew to draw on there? Or was that all kind of new for you? Oh, wow. No, not, not, not 100% new, but you'd be surprised to see two countries that close with such a different uh, culture. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Algeria, for example, we... Most of people are living in, in the north mm -hmm. by the sea. And in Algeria, 80%, almost 90 is desert, sand. Mm. And at the very south with Mauritania, it's the desert. Yeah. And these are people from the desert, mm -hmm. like Mohamedou. Yeah. And the culture is very different. I happen to have, I happen to have some tools with Mohamedou, like a, 
a bit of the language, even if Algerian and Mauritanian is, is different, but mm -hmm. I had to learn it for uh, yeah. for the movie. But uh, Muslim background, and uh, I was born and raised in France, and my parents came with the first wave of immigration in the 60s. But they came from a very poor place. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they told me about it, that I could... You know, relate to when I when I visited uh, Mohammedu's village where yeah. we shot. Mm -hmm. I could tell, oh, that I know, that I know. But finally, it's not that much. Yeah. And then I had to learn his language uh, to understand a little bit more about the way of life of people from Mauritania, especially the ones who are, you know, wandering in the desert. Nomad, uh, and they have a very um, uh, deep and beautiful philosophy. You know, they're not in a rush. They find their way by looking at the sky. Yeah. Time is different, you know. So there's a certain, a certain stillness in their, uh, in their spirits. Yeah. And it's very interesting to observe and to talk about. A lot, a lot of new things to learn on top of yeah. all the many other <laughs> new things to learn. Because you and Kevin known each other for a long time. You've kind of built this relationship over time. And what you guys, what you have to go through personally in this, you know, you talk about how you really tried to immerse yourself in, in the torture process as much as you could as an actor. And that's hard for you. But also, I think you have to have a lot of trust with the director to do something like that, to know that you're going to push yourself in that way and that he's there with you. So what did you guys do together to make those scenes happen? You just said it. It's all about trust. And uh, as I knew Kevin 10 years ago, Uh, this process you need to go through when you meet a director, you know, trust and talk and sometimes argue on the script or whatever. We did that before. So uh, it was uh, already one in a way. Yeah. So when I came, I was like, I had my uh, the most beautiful safety net, you know, with yeah. Kevin. I yeah. could try whatever I wanted. I knew he would tell me uh, that's not good. Uh, do it again. Let's go to this direction, right, left, up, down, you know. And plus, uh, he has a, a, a lot of experience with fictions and documentaries. Mm -hmm. And as he, as, he, as he did a lot of documentaries, he knows exactly what's a uh, genuine person, genuine expressions, mm. real, you know, real feeling, mm -hmm. real, you know, re realism. Yeah. And, I, and I knew that uh, uh, each time I would try something, Uh, he would see if it's right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, I, knowing this, I couldn't rely on my habits. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, I can't, I don't want to, and plus, out of respect to Muhammadu, I didn't want to just sell something or, uh, you know, make people believe mm -hmm. in what I'm doing. I wanted to believe it in, in what I was doing so I could convey authentic uh, emotions and feelings to I mean, to my team, my co-partners, Kevin, and, and the audience, and of course, Mohamedou. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you see, when you, when you have to play an instrument or know how to ride a horse for a movie, uh, you learn it, then you practice and you practice and you practice, and at some point you're ready and, uh, you know, action, boom, and you do it. This is the exact same thing. But I can't practice. <laughs> you <laughs> <Yeah>. see? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You have to just do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't see. Do you believe that? Me and my, me, myself and I in my hotel room trying to waterboard. <laughs> 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 no. I was like, okay. 
I gotta go all in and do it for real. I, I needed to go as close as possible to uh, uh, Muhammad's experience, you know, without putting myself in danger, but uh, so I can, uh, you know, feel what it is and, and uh, you know, just, just so I know and I can't fake it, then I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm feeling, it's real, you know? Yeah. I, I wouldn't put myself in danger, but Kevin started to get worried at some point. You know, he was like, hey man, it's okay, we got it. But the strange thing when you, when you experience those type of uh, strange things, you know, uh, you wanna go further and further. And the more you, 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 you try to do it, the further you wanna go. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, you feel like you're touching the truth in a way. Yeah. And this is what we're looking for. Each time, I mean actors, each time I play, that's what I'm seeking. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, I don't feel good. I'm like, mm, I, I was not 100%. Uh, I'm not like I go home and I'm like, I did all I could do. Now, if it's good, that's great. If it's not good, no regrets. I tried. Yeah. And this time I needed it. And uh, sometimes it's, it, it feels good to, to suffer in a way when you create something. Like you feel like you've put more of yourself into it when you have that kind of like physical struggle with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And plus this diet, mm -hmm. when you're on diet, you know, your feelings, you're very sensitive physically and, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't know, it's strange. It takes you to some places you, you never expected. Yeah. Had you done that kind of physical level of physical transformation for a role before? Not as much as this one. Yeah, I, I, I did. Because sometimes it's worthless. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta be thinner because uh, you're kind of poor. You're not gonna go like a, like a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has to be believable. You, know, you gotta fit in the movie. Yeah. So I tried. I did as much as I could, depending on the part I was uh, doing. But this part, no, never, because I never had the opportunity to go that far. Yeah. So in the days when Mohamedou's coming to the set, like, how does, you're talking about trying to capture him and kind of do honor by him. How does his presence affect the way you think about that? Or do you try to not think about him being there? Because that might throw you off. Of uh, you're right. <laughs> I, <laughs> when he was on set, of course, I went to him and I, and I yeah, I observed him because uh, that was the method I picked mm -hmm. uh, to play him. So I wanted to see the way he would react when he'd see the set. It was so real. And I could see that it, I could see him being hurt inside, mm -hmm. but trying to hide it. And I'm like, yeah, it, it hurts me, yeah. you know, because uh, he was going back there in a way, in a strange way. But I was like, okay, we, I really understood the man. I knew he would react this way. Yeah. So, so in a way, it it, it brings him more self confidence. Yeah, it, it validates what your understanding of his of him is to watch him respond to being yeah. on set like that. Yeah, Absolutely. that's really I interesting. Wish I, I wish I could speak English as good as no, you. No, 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 I <laughs> <laughs> no, really. <laughs> I feel so like articulate. I know exactly what you're saying. 
Um, I think it's <laughs> Give really... Give a couple of years. I'll <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really interesting in your in reading your other interviews, you've kind of reflected back on a prophet and how, you know, it was this big breakthrough for you. And there were just all these people around you being like, here's what's going to happen next. This is what the big thing is going to be. And I think your perspective is that, you know, some very, very good things happen and you are where you are now, but maybe it didn't all play out the way that people told you it would. Would you do anything differently now if you could like be yourself in that position again? Do you do you feel like you were set down a road that didn't w- wind up where you wanted to be then or did it all work out for the best? No, I wouldn't change anything, not a single thing. It's not my philosophy, mm-hmm. you know. It is what it is, it was what it was, and I guess for the better. I was just not ready at that time. Yeah. To be exposed this way, to be in the limelight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I made my choices. I, I was like, I said, okay, I don't want to turn into a, a stupid guy. <laughs> you know, the one I would, yeah. the one I would, uh, you know, in a way, show with the tip of my finger like that. Ah, this guy, I don't want to be him. Mm-hmm. So I protect. I, 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 in a way, self-isolated, overprotected myself. Mm-hmm. But. I missed some good things because mm-hmm. I didn't take I didn't take advantage of what was happening and it was just incredible. I was waiting for this for I don't know 15 years. Yeah. And when it happens, I'm hiding. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I needed it. I was just uh, I mean, who's prepared for this? Except yeah. except princes and princesses. You know. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. No one. But I'll, but I, I think that you're right that a lot of people can, you know, be thrust in the spotlight like that, especially when you're younger and make a lot of bad choices. And then five years later, it's all over. And here you are a decade later and you're getting you're still getting great roles and you're still kind of building up. So the long game may pay out better because I think when you get really famous when you're young, it's you can just really get your head spun around and not make good choices. And you avoided that. Yeah, but I got lucky. I was young, but not that young. I yeah. was 28. Yeah. But but still, 28, I was, uh, you know, <laughs> I was still all over the places. But if that, ha- if that happened to me when I was uh, 20 or 21, would have been very tough to, uh, you know, yeah. to handle. Yeah. So when something like, when the Mauritania happens and something like a Golden Globe nomination comes that, you know, I don't know what, how prepared you were for it, but I think, you know, it took some people by surprise that it happened. Do you, do you feel kind of a familiar rush from a prophet? Does it feel different now, like being on, on a stage on that level? Totally different, because uh, 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 this time I said, I said to myself, it's it's not gonna happen twice. So the yeah. the that's the reason why I I I'm not really thinking about uh, thinking too much about the awards or the outcome. Otherwise, you're not in the present. Yeah, I mean you, your head is in the future, and you miss the present. So you miss those beautiful moments that I missed uh, when a prophet uh, came out. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm gonna take advantage of everything's happening right now in the moment, because it's beautiful. It's very yeah. rare. You never know if it will if it will come back someday, can come and go, you know. Yeah. And a, a career goes up and down. And when it's up, now I take advantage. And, you've, and uh, you've learned to yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. I think about when Olivia Coleman won her Oscar a few years ago, she stood up there and said, well, this isn't going to happen again. So you can just see her. <laughs> you can see her enjoying it. I was like, you know what? That is exactly the right attitude. Um, before I let you go, I just want to say I thought you were great on the Eddie and I loved watching that show. And it was such a like an interesting, like, especially for an American watching Inside Paris. So I hope I hope more things like that come that, you know, working with Andre Holland, like, you know, having that cast. It was a what a great combination you guys had going there. Oh, yeah. Andre is such an angel. Such a beautiful soul. He was really. one of the I did a Zoom interview with him just like this, like very early on in the in the pandemic. So it feels like full circle that now I'm talking to you. Eventually, <laughs> I'll get the entire cast. Um, well, thank you for talking to me. I don't know what time it is in thank the you. afternoon for you, but I hope you have a great weekend. And uh, congratulations on on the success of the Martinian. Thank you so much. Okay, that does it for this week's show. As we said, you can uh, find us on VanityFair.com. Our articles from our awards issue are continuing to roll out. I know last week we talked about the cover story on Chadwick Boseman. There are more stories coming from there, um, so please keep reading. Um, And a tease for next week, the Hollywood issues around the corner. No revelations here, but you might want to keep listening for more on that. And also, please keep texting us. We love hearing from you on subtext. You can go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or send a text to 917-563-4588. Get in touch. We love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at littlegoldmen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Noah. I'm at Noah Gattel. Uh, Anything you want to plug that people should look out for beyond what you mentioned at the top of the show? Well, I'm giving this talk about the Oscars uh, in April for Smithsonian Associates. You can go to smithsonianassociates.org. There are still tickets available. Great. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best sign that maybe it is time to log off goes to Noah Gattel. I'm outraged out. <laughs>